this is Annie, and you're listening to Stuff Mom Never Told You. It's just about Thanksgiving here in the States, and that means one of my favorite stories of history, the story of Anna Josepha Hale and how Thanksgiving became a holiday. It's not quite as good as the story behind Mother's Day. That one's spectacular, but it's up there. Uh, Talk about persistence, and I know I'll be annoying all of my family members with all the Thanksgiving facts this year. And if you're interested, past host, co-host Kristen, and I used to make these dorky videos called Herstory, and Kristen was amazing in them, of course. But we did one about the history of Thanksgiving and Anna Josepha Hale. So you can find it on the YouTubes if you want. But for, for those of you preparing to push the boundaries of your elastic pants, or for those vaguely curious about why Americans celebrate this holiday on the third Thursday of November, sit back and enjoy. Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Caroline. And first off, I would like to say happy birthday to Caroline. Because this is her Thanksgiving episode. Mm -hmm. And your birthday is on Thanksgiving this year. I love it. I love this birthday cycle that I have where every couple of years I get to pretend that the giant feast and the pie that follows is just for me. Now, will you have a special cake in addition to pies? Yep. Okay. That's right. Oh, yeah. Chocolate on chocolate, man. I like your birthday style. Thanks. Well, you have a woman to thank for this Thanksgiving slash birthday feast that you will be having. And I'm not talking about your mama. Oh, okay. okay. No offense to Sally. (laughs) I'm talking about Sarah Josepha Hale. Oh? Yes. She is the mother of Thanksgiving. Yeah, and uh, much like the mother of Mother's Day. um, Anna Jarvis. Yeah, there we go. Anna Jarvis, uh, who stars in one of our videos. Um, Sarah Hale had very particular ideas about how Thanksgiving should go. And, you know, of course, that included starting the Thanksgiving mythology about the wonderful dinner coming together of the Native Americans and the Pilgrims. Indeed, the 1621 feast that's often cited as the first Thanksgiving, which was thrown by the Pilgrims, a.k.a. the brownest English dissenters, was, as Thanksgiving scholars, and yes, there are Thanksgiving scholars, would point out, was merely the result of their puritanical fasting and feasting tradition. Right, and and so it was not uncommon to have a Thanksgiving feast, a a giving of thanks celebration if something amazing happened. And in this particular case, it was because they were thanking God for having a great food store. They'd made it through the winter and they had enough food and tasty morsels and things. It was definitely not a scheduled ritual. That would have been presumptuous because they were these feasts were in direct 
direct correlation with something awesome that happened that was from God in their in their view. Yeah, and on the flip side of that, they would have these days of feasting, yes, but they would also have those periods of fasting too, mm-hmm. where they would be seeking perhaps mercy from God by abstaining from food. So the whole idea of the pilgrims coming together with the Wampanoag Native Americans and having this happy-go-lucky wonderful meal that then set off the the course of Thanksgiving history as we know it is a bit of revisionist history courtesy of Sarah Josepha Hale. Although that's not to say that there weren't other Thanksgiving-like celebrations that would happen. This was pretty common to have a giant meal to celebrate something. Absolutely. That's my favorite way to celebrate something. Um, In 1777, the Continental Congress declared a Thanksgiving. And in 1789, Washington called for a repeat, and until 1815, New Englanders usually continued the tradition, but it is Mrs. Hale who we can thank for this glorious day of turkey. Yeah, and we learned more about S.J. Hale over at the National Women's History Museum and the Boston Women's Heritage Trail. She was born in New Hampshire in 1788, taught herself at home while her brother went off to Dartmouth because... That's kind of how schooling went those days. Uh, And her parents, though, did believe that their daughter should get a quality education, but just not in public. (laughs) Right. Not not out of the house. Oh, Lord. Um, Yeah. And she would sometimes study the books that her brother brought home from college. And in 1806, with all of this great education she received, at 18, she opened a private school and taught there until marrying lawyer David Hale in 1813. But then... David the lawyer died in 1822. And so she had five kids at the time and thought to herself, Sarah, what are we going to do to take care of all these kids? And she was a writer. And so she, uh, she wrote the book of poems, The Genius of Oblivion and other poems. And she also wrote a novel called Northwood in 1827 that had a lot of info in there on a Thanksgiving celebration, a traditional New England Thanksgiving Yeah, I love how she paints Thanksgiving as something that everybody should participate in. Um, She also wrote Mary Had a Little Lamb in 1830. Yeah. So... And so we just should end the podcast there. I know. This woman created Thanksgiving and wrote Mary Had a Little Lamb. The end. Done. Um, Side note, though, during this time uh, that she was doing all of this writing, in 1833, she established the Seamen's Aid Society in Boston to provide employment for the wives of sailors as seamstresses and a place for them to sell their work. She also developed an industrial school for Seamen's daughters and a day nursery. So she was like way ahead of the curve on having on-site daycare. And even though this is jumping forward a bit in the timeline, I would I would like to note that one of her literary successes was her compilation of a woman's encyclopedia, going along, too, with this theme of her uh, push for women's education and uh, employment opportunities. She wrote women's records or sketches of all distinguished women from the creation to A.D. 1854, arranged in four eras with selections from female writers of every age. (laughs) I appreciate how 19th century subtitles were so blessedly long. It's just, it's great. Um, But before this, though, before she wrote her women's encyclopedia, she had acquired all this literary success and became the editor of the American Ladies Magazine, and then the editor of the Godey's Ladies Journal. And while that might not sound 
like a big deal. That was essentially like her becoming Joanna Cole, who is the now editor of Cosmopolitan. Yeah, it's a pretty big deal. I mean, she was in this role for 40 years and she used the magazine as a platform to advocate for women's education. Um, For instance, one example, she was very supportive of Vassar when it opened its doors in 1865. And in this magazine, Godey's Ladies Journal, she published reading lists just like Oprah. So she's this woman. I swear she's a trailblazer. Um, And she would list schools that accepted women. And she also, in addition to starting that Siemens Aid Society, she championed women pursuing careers like teaching and medicine. And she also supported her claims, though, with contemporary contemporary ideas of women being more pious and pure, saying that women are basically more cut out for teaching and medicine than men. Mm-hmm. I will note, though, that I, I learned, and this is not Thanksgiving related, but I did learn a couple days ago that Godey's under the editorial leadership of... Sarah Josephina Hale was largely responsible too for popularizing the tradition of white wedding gowns in the United States because Queen Victoria had her 1840 wedding. She wore the white gown. And a decade later in Godey's, there is this uh, edict essentially saying, women, white is the color you must wear. So, I mean, that's just an example of how influential too this magazine was at the time. And once she took over... She dedicated pretty much every November to lobbying for a national day of thanks. She used her platform. Yeah, she called for a pious patriotic holiday that would serve as a check against temptation or a comfort in tough times. And she wanted all to participate in this Thanksgiving holiday, regardless of race, ethnicity, or social standing. Yeah, and Anna Blue Wills, who's an associate professor at Davidson, did a really intensive study of Godey's and Sarah Josephina Hale's campaign for Thanksgiving. And she found that Hale was largely pushing for Thanksgiving even more so as the tensions increased between the North and the South. The, the closer that we got to the Civil War, the more Hale was calling for a Thanksgiving. And she even used Godies as a platform, kind of like a in a Martha Stewart sort of way, to tell readers how to decorate and dress for Thanksgiving. And of course, she included plenty of recipes. Right. And so, I mean, during this whole time, though, like we mentioned, Thanksgiving was already, these celebrations were already a New England tradition. It was already something that was going on. But Hale really, for decades used her platform to urge presidents to make this a national holiday. She was not just sitting there writing columns or screaming out into the abyss. I mean, she was really pushing this to be a national holiday. Yeah, it took her 38 years. And I think she started with President Polk writing him and saying, please, let's have this day of thanks. Um, And then on November 29th, 1860... Abraham Lincoln had his own Thanksgiving with his family uh, after just being elected because this is very common. Again, this idea of celebrating something great that has happened with a delicious meal of food. And Lincoln did have a roasted turkey. As is only proper. Indeed. Um, And, I mean, you know, Lincoln was not the only uh, person to be doing this. Uh, It was happening in the South, too, after the Civil War got underway. On July 28, 1861, Confederate President Jefferson Davis called for a Thanksgiving celebration in the South after their victory at Bull Run. And a year later, in September of 1862, 
The Confederacy held its second and final Thanksgiving after their second Bull Run victory. And that leads us up to 1863 when Lincoln issues not one but two Thanksgiving proclamations. Yes, 1863 is the year for Thanksgiving in the United States. Uh, On August 6th, he issues his first proclamation after the Union's victory at Gettysburg. And then he issues his second declaring Thanksgiving a holiday. And this was really a decisive political move for him due to the Civil War. I mean, this was a not-so-symbolic way to say, hey, nation, uh, things are going really poorly, but (laughs) can we just get together for a meal and and a lot of turkey. Yeah, I mean, it, it was a good way to sort of try to knit knit everybody back together. And on October 3rd, 1863, when he issued his proclamation, he says, I do therefore invite my fellow citizens in every part of the United States and also those who are at sea and those who are sojourning in foreign lands to set apart and observe the last Thursday of November next as a day of thanksgiving and praise to our beneficent Father who dwelleth in the heavens. Could you go back and say all that in your Abraham Lincoln voice? Beneficent father who dwelleth in the heavens. How's that? That's He okay. had a high-pitched voice. Like, I've read Lincoln Oh, books. yeah, that's true. Yeah, you got a little Daniel Day-Lewis, <laughs> yeah. Abe Lincoln going on there. If there's one thing that anyone has ever said about me, it's that I am so Daniel Day-Lewis. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Um, then in 1864, Thanksgiving was not so surprisingly heavily focused on thanking the Union troops for doing their work in the Civil War. And it seems like from there, with this history of Thanksgiving, it just sort of takes off from there. Perhaps because Sarah Josephina Hale had so diligently set the foundation of outlining the guidelines for a proper Thanksgiving in Godey's. People knew the decor, they knew what to wear, they knew the food to cook, and you already had that tradition already going on. Yeah. So... It just needed a little push. And who wouldn't be like, well, sure, we'll take this national holiday where we have a day off from work and get to eat all day. Right. But uh, we'll, we'll get to why it's not such a day off for women in a second. But, I mean, a side note, in 1939, FDR tried to push Thanksgiving back one week. Oh, my God. What is he doing? At the behest of retailers looking for more shopping time between Thanksgiving and Christmas. And people did not go for that. Yeah, people got so mad that they started calling it Franksgiving, which is so funny. And he finally threw in the towel and said, oh, okay, listen, we're going to have it at the normal time. People, Americans were very attached to Thanksgiving. Although I would like to take a moment and acknowledge Canadian Thanksgiving, Mm -hmm. which happens in October. And I did some research uh, for a Stuff I Never Told You YouTube video on Canadian Thanksgiving foods. And all of their traditional Thanksgiving foods are the same as our traditional Thanksgiving foods because the British loyalists post-1776, hightailed it out of the United States, took their pumpkins and turkeys (laughs) and squashes with them up to Canada and sort of disseminated those traditions. Although I'm sure, Canadians, I'm not saying that you are copycatting us. I'm just saying that Thanksgiving is an interesting tradition that is shared across the borders. Because of our Puritan roots. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And over at the History Kitchen, Tori Avey gives us some more information into Hale's ideal 
Thanksgiving and what those foods, those ritualistic foods that we eat every year would have been like back in Hale's day. And the answer is not unlike what they are today. There's that scene that we referenced in her novel Northwood about their Thanksgiving celebration. And Hale wrote, the roasted turkey took precedence on this occasion, being placed at the head of the table. And well did it become its lordly station, sending forth the rich odor (laughs) of its savory stuffing and finally covered with the frost of baking. Oh, it sounds wonderful. Well, and vegetarian and vegan listeners, plug your ears for a second because Hale's idea of Thanksgiving was really like a meatsgiving yes, because yes. she advocated not only serving the turkey, but you also have to toss out a sirloin of beef, a leg of pork, and of course, a joint of mutton. Well, you know, this is good news for a friend of mine who is distraught because her brother hosts Thanksgiving and he prefers a standing rib roast. And she's like, that is not, that is not Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is a turkey. We never have turkey except on Thanksgiving. And I suggested, hey, well, why don't you bring the turkey from your house and you can have both and then it can be a real meatsgiving. And then you can make incredible sandwiches after. Mmm, saturated fat. Um... Other foods that were suggested for the celebration included oysters, soups, turkey, ham, roast beef, chicken pie, rice, potatoes, cranberries, macaroni, pies, cakes, fruit, and coffee. Yes, please. Yeah, that's more elaborate than my family's Thanksgiving style. Yeah, we have turkey and stuffing. We have squash casserole. We have the canned cranberry jelly because my father loves it. My mother also makes um, someone out there, please, please fill me in on if your family does this too. My mother makes tomato aspic which is tomato jello jello that is made with v8 and vegetables suspended in mid jello but of course she calls it tomato aspic because her mother was from virginia so is it some kind of regional tradition i guess well that's what i want to find out from listeners because i'm lazy and haven't googled it but yeah tell me tell you know if anybody else out there serves that really gross jello every year I'm trying to think if there uh, my my mom switches up the menu every now and then. We have like a list of of traditional Thanksgiving items that will, she'll kind of circulate through each year, and none are as peculiar as aspic. It is peculiar, and really only like three people out of twenty eat it. Yeah, but yeah, it's it's passed down from Virginia. That's I had. I would have never associated aspect with Thanksgiving. But hey, that's the great thing about Thanksgiving. You can mix it up if you want to. That's right. Um, but in, in addition, though, to Hale sort of giving us this bountiful menu for us to enjoy, like we said at the top of the podcast, she was also responsible for popularizing that story of that first 1621 Pilgrim Thanksgiving, which did happen. That meal did happen, but certainly not in the glorified sense that she put it in because that was also part of her entire propaganda campaign Mm -hmm. because she was like, this is celebrating America, (laughs) you know? Right. And what's terrifying, and I, I had no idea about any of this, but within five short years of her publishing this romanticized tale, it was included in textbooks textbooks people and this was just a political meeting between between native americans and puritans uh you know being like hey what's up we've got this stuff going on 
uh, here's some squash. It wasn't yeah. so much like a let's all sit down and be puppies and rainbows forever. Yeah, the the Wampanoag Native Americans weren't welcoming everyone with open arms saying, yeah, yes, have all of my land, actually. And for that reason, though, starting in 1970, Thanksgiving became known as nation- the National Day of Mourning to the United American Indians of New England. So that's... That's the dark side of Thanksgiving that we often don't talk about so much as we are feasting on our food is that, yeah, the, the, the celebratory roots do have their darker corners in terms of the land that we did take, what we were actually celebrating in terms of, you know, right. taking over a spot that wasn't ours. Well, you know, the great thing about Thanksgiving being scheduled on a Thursday. You know, you're like, why why Thursday? Yeah. Why? Well, the, you know, it's just it's just so great for us, Kristen, as as women who were often in the kitchen. Um, in 1876, Hale writes, should not the women of America have one festival in whose rejoicings they can fully participate? So basically, having Thanksgiving on a Thursday is the most convenient day because women can prepare this feast all leading up to Thanksgiving on a Thursday and then get right back in the kitchen and have everything ready for Sunday dinner. Well, Hale was trying to do women a solid. She, I think she, she had altruistic motives for wanting women to be able to really get involved with this holiday and showcase our talents as not just cooks, but also as nurturers. And she talked about how a successful meal was meant to stand in tribute to the quote unquote artistry of the housewife who would probably have the power to serve a lovely dinner, even in the midst of a forest. I'll have to tell my mother this, you know, when I, when I go home for Thanksgiving and just be like, you know, your artistry with this butterball that you have thawed in the bathtub, which is also its own annual ritual. I tell you what, I've been to some Thanksgiving feasts that that are certainly artistry. But one thing I was surprised to not find in the follow-up research to this aspect of Thanksgiving, which is how it was kind of engineered to have women cooking, were today's statistics on the time women spend in the kitchen, the percentage of women who are responsible for Thanksgiving meals. And there was nothing I could find about that. I guess just because it's the assumption that we'll do it. Maybe. I I don't know. I am terrified of ever having to take over Thanksgiving because that just seems like so much. I mean, my mother is exhausted by the time dinner is served. My mom also exhausts herself as well, but I feel like she really enjoys it. My mom certainly embraces more of the Sarah Josepha Hale aspect of Thanksgiving where Mm -hmm. it does showcase her capabilities in the kitchen, which are very good and delicious. Um, And I've hosted my parents before, though, for Thanksgiving, and it was a frenzied morning. I'll tell you that. (laughs) Yeah. Trying to get all those casseroles ready at the same time is a challenge. It is a challenge. And I still never cooked a turkey. Oh, well, actually, one of my favorite stories that my mother tells every year at Thanksgiving is the first Thanksgiving that she and my father had after they were married, and his parents came down for it. And my father's mother um, was an opinionated lady. Mm -hmm. Just put it that way. And she demanded that my mother tent the bird. Tent the bird. 
and put a tinfoil tent over the turkey for the entirety of its roasting, which if you know, I if you've done any recent reading on cooking a turkey, you know that it's good to put it on like the last five or ten minutes to really make the skin all crispy and wonderful. Yeah, so after the bird had been done cooking for, or had been cooking for like, what, six hours or some crazy number, um, it was white. It was a white, lukewarm, kind oh, no. of disgusting-looking butterball. And so... What did she do? How did she save you, Thanksgiving? You have to rip that tent off. My godmother was like, Sally, rip the tent off. Take, Get rid of the tent. And so, yeah, Thanksgiving was saved by, like, cooking it for just a little while longer to make it brown up a little. It's uh, I mean, thinking about how this day started with one woman's 38-year mm-hmm. campaign for it is incredible. It's kind of incredible. Someone yeah. so passionate about us having a national Thanksgiving that she went on for a bulk of her life. Yeah, but we're doing it wrong. I mean, I think if, if Sarah Josepha Hale were around... I think she would not be so pleased with the fact that we are worshiping in front of the football game on TV as opposed to spending the day in church and then feasting. Yeah, and and she certainly would not like the most recent developments of some stores now opening Thanksgiving night so we can get started on our holiday shopping. That stresses me out just even thinking about it. Yeah, let's not think about it. What we need to think about, Caroline, is the fact that it is a day of feasting and also this year a day of your birth celebration. So everybody email Caroline some happy (laughs) birthday tidings posted on our Facebook. Tweet us. Uh, MomStuffAtDiscovery.com is where you can email us and share your Thanksgiving stories with us. We hope that everyone listening, at least in the United States, sorry for international listeners, I realize it's not your Thanksgiving, but I hope this was entertaining and we would love to hear whatever tradition you have for giving thanks, celebrating a day, hopefully with family and friends or just eating a turkey sandwich by yourself and watching Netflix, with, which also sounds nice. <laughs> Let us know what you're doing for the day. Momstuffadiscovery.com is where you can email us. You can also tweet us at momstuffpodcast or find us on Facebook. And we have a couple of messages to share with you when we come right back from a quick break. And now back to our letters. Well, I've got an email here from Brandon in response to a podcast a little while ago about women and true crime. So he wanted to toss in his two cents as well. He says, I do have to be contradictory on one point, as I understood it. Near the end of the episode, you seem to imply that most true crime shows depict a crime perpetrated by a stranger. I feel like it's exactly the opposite. I don't have the number by any means, but my instinct is that the majority of shows depict crime within a family to the point that I have sometimes turned off an episode as it starts because it sounds like yet another husband murders wife or vice versa case. The ones that are more random stick out more in my mind because they seem more rare and because I tend to be a little more interested in them. I have this probably arrogant idea that I would be able to tell if a friend or family member was so unstable as to be a risk before anything happened, but I can't do anything to anticipate a more random crime. Again, all this is based on my instinctive reaction from years of random true crime viewing, so not nearly scientific. One thing I am curious about, did you find any thoughts or statistics about the 
popularity of unsolved crimes, those have always been the most fascinating to me, the open question. And clearly, there's been a market for it with shows like Unsolved Mysteries, but it doesn't offer the same sense of closure. And we didn't see any unsolved mystery statistics. Although that show scared the poop out of me as a kid. My instinct would be that it's not as popular as true crime because it does seem like a lot of the attraction there is seeing the person come to justice. Yeah, I think it might be a slightly different audience, I would think. Yeah, yeah. Oof, I don't like Unsolved Mysteries either. Well, there's always mist, like I said in that episode. Why is there always fog? Anyway, I have a letter here from Mari talking about our diamond engagement ring episode. Um, she says, I got engaged last year and my fiance was smart enough to ask about my ring preferences. Since learning about blood diamonds a few years back, I've been set on a sapphire engagement ring, excluding diamonds if at all possible. Unfortunately, you wouldn't believe how hard it is to find loose sapphires that can be turned in to traditional type engagement rings. We are fortunate to be living in Los Angeles where there is a huge jewelry and gem district. However, despite the thousands of gem dealers in the area, we found only a few that had loose sapphires. Luckily, we found a gem of a shop that has thousands of sapphires and we were able to find just the right color and shape. She says sapphires come in almost every color and shape naturally. Having chosen the right sapphire, I waited for my soon-to-be betrothed to propose. But in this waiting period, I experienced a fear and panic I didn't expect. What if people shunned my non-diamond engagement ring? What if I was skipping out on the traditional engagement ring and would regret it later? Fortunately, once I saw the ring, all those fears dissipated. Looking back now, I see that those fears were born of the exact social pressures that you two were discussing in your podcast. I'm glad I didn't let society change my mind because I absolutely love my one-of-a-kind sapphire engagement ring and I get compliments on it all the time. Hurrah for originality and pushing the social norms. And Mari, my mother also has a sapphire engagement ring slash wedding ring, but she has diamonds on hers too. But so anyway, thank you for the awesome story and congratulations on the awesome ring and the wedding. Yeah, that ring sounds gorgeous. Uh, And thanks to everybody who's written in. MomStuffDiscovery.com is where you can email us. You can follow us on Twitter at MomStuffPodcast. Find us on Facebook. Don't forget to like us. And we are on Instagram as well at StuffMomNeverToldYou and also on Tumblr at StuffMomNeverToldYou.tumblr.com. And don't forget that you can watch us. If you're on Thanksgiving holiday, well, you've got plenty of time to watch all of our 100-plus videos over at youtube.com slash stuff mom never told you. And don't forget to subscribe. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com.